couple of announcements, which are, if you would like to join us on an in-person retreat at Garrison Institute up in about an hour above New York, easy ride by train goes directly there. Shortly posting about that, it'll be over Labor Day. So it'll be a five-day in-person retreat. And as usual, we're keeping the cost as low as possible so that as many people can attend without an undue financial stress. And um, also the hope is that in April, we can do one of our day-longs. So I'll be hoping to announce that as well in person in Manhattan. So if you're available uh, locally available for that. I uh, hope you can join us. And finally, if you'd like to support my work, which is entirely sustained by donations, nothing is charged for the Venmo's Dharma Punks with an XNYC and the PayPal buttons on the website. So tonight I thought I'd talk about the, the inundation of bad news in the world and uh, how to be or find balance when we are saturated with uh, dramatic, challenging, uh, unsettling news from the world around us. I hope this talk will be of some interest. And once uh, the talk is concluded. We'll go directly into some spiritual practices that I've uh, will mention in the uh, <clears throat> in the talk, and then there'll be time for questions at the end. So relax, settle in, find a comfortable seat, and uh, here we go. So. In life, when startling events occurs, uh, it triggers a fast mobilization response. Suppose you're lying in bed at night and you hear a sudden sound that uh, it feels like could, uh, it appears like could be stemming from somewhere in your apartment or home. And within a half second, there's a mobilization alert, your muscles tense, your breath is held, the vagal nerve deactivates, your heart races, and your attention focuses to your external senses like vision and hearing. And we start scanning the environment around us for threats. Now, if all goes well, once the threat is concluded, once we realize that the sound that woke us was actually uh, from outside of our apartment or house or where we're living, that we're not in any danger, then the body, uh, we switch out of the sympathetic nervous system. And one of the ways we do this is the body metabolizes the tension that's built up in the neck, shoulders, and abdomen. We may shake or tremble. We might lie and just breathe and pant until the emotional, the survival flight fight impulses dissipate. And over time, the vagal nerve will reactivate, which will regulate our heart rate and homeostasis will return. And once again, we won't be scanning for threat we'll be able to fully relax and return to rest. If the down regulation though is incomplete, if we fail to metabolize stressors, stressful events by quickly, if we, for instance, too quickly after a threatening uh, experience or a difficult piece of information too quickly, try to get back to our life or don't sit and allow ourselves to metabolize the physical stress. If we orient immediately to something else that's stressful, then unfortunately the key regions 
of the brain, the brainstem, the PAG, the right amygdala, and so on, continues to scan unconsciously behind our awareness for threats. We're not fully relaxed. Our muscles will stay somewhat tense. Excessive stress hormones will be secreted. Uh, glutamate will be worked through too quickly. And a much more stressful state will of adenosine will be relied upon. Our, over time, if we have too many successive overlapping stressors, we will be in an almost constant state of threat detection. And because of that, we'll always, we'll find it difficult to function highly. Our cognitive prefrontal cortex will no longer be able to inhibit fight-flight impulses. It'll be difficult for us to figure out how to act appropriately. And many people can spend their entire life in a state of heightened threat detection, especially those who've experienced traumas uh, or adverse childhood events. But for the last two years, almost all of us have lived amidst unresolved, overlapping states of, of unpredictability in the world. We've had the pandemic, a novel pathogen that has killed, uh, led to millions of deaths uh, and vast economic upheaval that's led to social distancing where we no longer have had our nervous systems regulated by reliable ongoing patterns of connections with others. We've had a deranged president bent on overthrowing democracy We've had police brutality that's led to a massive mobilization, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, which was at once galvanizing, but also uh, a lot of change to process. But even if that was not enough, we now have a bloodthirsty dictator hell bent on demolishing a sovereign nation and threatening the West with nuclear war. And we are once again bombarded with images of bombed out buildings and bodies of people lying on rubbled streets in Europe to the degree that now people in Europe are hoarding iodine pills out of the fear that nuclear war might break out between uh, the rogue state of Russia and the NATO countries. So there hasn't been any period of time in the last two years where we could, for any extended period, uh, relax, settle, metabolize the stressors, um, downregulate our nervous systems for any extended period. This is why in the last two years, um, I read a survey of uh, tens of thousands of Americans have constantly shown that between 30 and 40% of respondents in the US have reported the symptoms analogous with anxiety disorders. That's up 200% since 2019 sometimes almost 300%. And all that stress, all this prolonged period of instability, unreliability, unpredictability, which is so important for high cognitive functioning, has uh, left us with the natural survival inclination to seek as much information as possible gathering info by watching news, doom scrolling, triggers the same neural pathways as collecting vital survival resources as, you know, it used to be for hunting and foraging for food when we would stumble across food or uh, resources to help us cook or provide shelter. We'd be rewarded with dopamine and 
um, uh, uh, norepinephrine and adrenaline, and it would focus our attention and we'd feel this burst of energy. Well, it, studies of the brain looking at news show some of the exact same regions uh, being activated, but as we'll see in many ways, scanning the world, the news sources, looking for constant more and more information is in many ways, one of the most pernicious forms of addiction uh, that is now prevalent. Like all forms of craving, such as hoarding food, binge watching TV, binge shopping, and so forth, binging on the news at one, in the one hand, uh, is addictive, and it activates a lot of pathways that are very difficult to switch off, yet at the same time, it makes us feel pretty bad. In a 2017 American Psych Psychological Association study, over 50% of the population, one out of every two people, said that the news was a significant source of stress in their life, yet they found it more and more difficult to turn it off. In a study by, um, I can't remember their names, Bodus and Solomon, it was in 2015, and the study was called Anxiety-Inducing Media, that much I can remember. Um, they found that at the start of wars, individuals who increased their normal watching of TV or internet news were 150% more likely to develop anxiety disorders than those who continued watching at their normal frequency. So it exacerbates disorders. It uh, makes us feel more and more unsafe rather than safer, yet it's increasingly difficult to uh, find balance when we're in a world where uh, there is constantly a flood of information available on every screen, making the world feel unsafe. Of course, due to negativity bias, the brain gives more attention and more and believes bad news more than it gives attention and believes good news. This is why one of the oldest news acronyms or sayings is if it bleeds, it leads. People don't give much attention to the good news or the idea that a pandemic will end, but they give lots of attention to the idea that there's a novel, uh, uh, a, a new variant of COVID, or that a new stressor in the world is out there. If you have a smartphone, a news app, a TV screen, uh, you get information at the gym or on the deli or car radios, you'll of course be aware that the headlines and the repeated news is almost invariably negative because that's what garners attention. Um, bad, stressful news has a lot of neural rewards that make it so addictive. Um, anything that activates anger or fear is inherently addictive. We get the rush of adrenaline, the surge of norepinephrine, followed by then a surge of cortisol secretion. Cortisol is the uh, really harmful stress hormone that kicks in when we are uh, experiencing low or high levels of stress over a long duration. Cortisol is extremely bad for uh, liver functioning, heart functioning, it leads to heart sclerosis. yet it's also addictive. So oddly enough, um, it's difficult to switch off uh, and disconnect from those sources of information that activate 
cortisol. Anger is especially intoxicating. I love, uh, I, I admit, watching John Oliver and Trevor Noah and Stephen Colbert eviscerating Republicans and conservatives and guilty as charged. And I know that people on the right love watching Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram and Ted Cruz acting like imbeciles. Uh, during COVID, um, those of us on the left turned our anger towards the incompetence of Trump. Those on the right turned their anger towards Anthony Fucci, Fauci, who asked them to wear masks during a pandemic. Who knew? Uh, now that uh, Ukraine has been invaded uh, by Russia, uh, those of us who are, I think, uh, remotely informed might turn our anger towards Putin. But uh, somehow there's also those who turn their anger towards Biden. Anger is very, very intoxicating. It's associated with a flood of, uh, a, a, you know, uh, uh, these neuromodulators that make us feel suddenly alive and engaged. It's very, very difficult to disengage from it. And that's why we talk about having older relatives that we've lost to Fox News. That's why we talk about doom scrolling. That's why we talk about TV news junkies, because at heart, people are easily manipulated by things. If you can make someone angry, you can keep their attention. That's why on Facebook, the algorithms that sow dissent and get more and more uh, vehement responses reward the most negative or um, inflammatory posts. Additionally, there's even more reasons why news is uh, bad news is addictive are from the very moment we are socialized uh into peer settings and educational institutions institutions uh we're instilled with the belief that consuming info for the sake of consuming information is vital to adult functioning in accumulating information in school, that's how we pass tests. That's how we get positive notices from teachers. That's what gets us attention and makes us feel that we are uh, doing well. The evolutionary psychologist Robin Dunbar noted that accumulating gossip and bad news was instrumental in establishing originally social order and cohesion. So it's fundamental to the formation of language as well, he noted, because as a social species, it was vital for us to know which members of the tribe were not pulling their own weight, which members of a tribe were not reliable or were uh, in some way um, not sharing their resources with us. So to not be in the know originally as for a social species was to be left out, was to be vulnerable. And that's why when, for example, people hear of their favorite actors or musicians dying, they rush onto Facebook or Instagram to post a, a rest in peace message. It's not just because we really think that uh, in, the information has any utility. It's because deep down inside, there's this feeling of being the one who knows is vital or essential to our survival. And thus, it's very, very, very difficult to disconnect. Disconnecting for any period of time can make us feel like we're not in the know. It can make us feel like we're vulnerable, that other people, the idea that other people know more than we do uh, is very disconcerting. And uh, yet, uh, it's very interesting that from a Buddhist 
Buddhist perspective, what the Buddha originally taught was a vastly different approach to consuming or acquiring information. There's really two key uh, concerns that the Buddha mentions over and over and over when it comes to knowledge, information, being aware of what's going on in the world. The first issue was, is it useful? And there's a couple of famous teachings of the Buddha that really are, I think, really kind of fun and informative. The first was the Simsapa Sutta. Simsapa is a tree that has these leaves that are extremely plentiful, and the leaves could be used for different purposes. So uh, in a famous sutta, the Buddha holds up a few Simsapa leaves, and he said, which are more useful and valuable, the few Simsapa leaves I have here in my hand, or all of the leaves on all of the trees that surround us? And then he answers, what is more numerous is not necessarily more valuable. There are a lot of things I know that I don't teach as so many ideas and information in the world aren't relevant to the spiritual path. They're not relevant to ending suffering. So I don't teach them, I don't bother with them, and I don't bother you with them. So in this way, the leaves he holds in his hands are said to be more valuable or useful than all of the leaves in the forest. Then another simile the Buddha in the water snake sutta talks about his famous simile of the raft. He says that the, the Dharma is like a raft to be used for accomplishing a goal, not for the purpose of being hoarded or kept with us all the time. And then he uses, he gives this famous teaching where he says, suppose I gathered grass and twigs and branches and leaves and bound them together in a way to make a raft. And I used that raft to cross a very dangerous river that I couldn't swim. And I got to the other side. And then he says to his students, once I've reached the other shore, should I carry that raft on my head or back wherever I go, even though it's no longer useful, simply out of appreciation for the fact that helped me out once. And his students say, well, no, that would be silly. And the Buddha says, that's true. And that's the same way we should look at knowledge and information. We should only carry around that which is useful, which is actually of some benefit. Filling up our minds with excessive informa information for the sake of it, for the, for the sake of seeming knowledgeable, uh isn't um isn't the path in fact the more we fill up our minds with excessive information it deflects our attention and resources from that which is really skillful and beneficial very often if now of course there are cases where we might need to know more information than other people if i were, for example, a journalist covering international affairs, if I was a social studies teacher, if I was an international policy analyst, I might need to know a lot more about the internecine background of the conflicts that led to Putin's disastrous decision, and I might need to have a lot more information on the ongoing implications of the bombardment of cities in the Ukraine, and I might need to know a huge amount more. But for me, as a Buddhist teacher, I needed to know just enough to take positive action. So 
for me, the most important thing to know is that there is suffering, that there are people being displaced and homeless, and there are uh, casualties. And so then I use that information to do research, and I found two good organizations to donate what little money I can to help those individuals. But sitting around reading constantly the latest uh, uh, item out of some sense that it's somehow more valuable to me rather than to go about also my work in providing counseling for people and teaching is not a beneficial or useful use of my time. Now, a second concern besides is the information useful is how much information or or news can we handle without it becoming overwhelming and incapacitating? In other words, how much can we handle without incurring suffering? This brings up the Buddha's famous teaching on equanimity, which balances out all of our compassion, all of our attention, and all of our efforts, he said, had to be counterbalanced by knowing what we're capable of. The Buddha said again and again and again that it's not worthwhile to go so far in helping others that we no longer can take care of ourselves or take care of those that we love. We have to be aware of how many of what our resources are truly. Uh, to avoid creating additional suffering and to channel our energies to areas we can be of help. Um, equanimity isn't cold-hearted. It's not in any way, uh, as Tanisara Bhikkhu says, indifferent to suffering. It simply means our compassion will be more focused and effective. I did a lot of I do a lot of volunteering now, but I did a lot of volunteering when I was right out of college for different organizations, uh, including, you know, organizations to get the U.S. out of El Salvador, stop the U.S. for funding, death squads in El Salvador to, I did uh, work to end, you know, volunteering uh, in the anti-apartheid movement and so on and so forth. But I found that sometimes those who accumulated more and more information burnt out quicker and abandoned the cause than those who were very good at knowing how much they could pay attention to and then would take time to themselves to focus their attention on positives in their lives so that they didn't become constantly stressed out, constantly obsessed or jaded, so that their relationships weren't wouldn't fail, so that they wouldn't lose sleep. They had a great sense of what we might call work-life balance. Um, even Ukrainian expats, I would hope, would seek enough balance in, a, in watching the news, but also taking care of themselves and their families and their attendant obligations here, rather than becoming all consumed to the point that they no longer can take care of themselves or their loved ones. My family, uh, my dad's side was Ukrainian, my mom's was Jewish from Belarus and Poland. And uh, uh, my mom grew up in during the, you know, the Holocaust. And they were aware of how many Jews were being killed in, um, in Europe. And yet they also took time not to sit around and focus on the bad news and constantly fixate on that. They balance their life with all of the joys and all of the soothing resources around them. They knew how much they could consume. To be a Buddhist is not to live like an ostrich. It's not to hide from bad news, but it's also to be acutely aware of how much news is useful 
it helps us make decisions that will be beneficial to others and how much we can really handle without it becoming addictive and stressful. And so a key for the Buddha was restraint. There's restraint is one of the words in Pali, the Buddha's original uh, or closest to the original language of the Buddha. And there's many, 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 many words for restraint, like niyamo, uparati, damana, and it's the foundation for the middle way. Um, as the Buddha taught, those who live appropriately learn how to practice restraint in what they look at, what they listen to, what they touch, taste, and feel. And in fact, they also live with restraint in regards to what they think about. This is the key to the Sabhasava Sutta. Well, the Buddha's teaching here is not to completely be ignorant, but also not to be indulgent and addicted to consuming too much, to know what is just the right amount of info for us. This means we have to be able to disconnect at times. The word viveka in Buddhism means to put aside the stresses of the world and to develop strength by setting aside times for peace and quiet and seclusion and self-care. It's okay not to be plugged in at times. It's okay to turn off the alert alerts, to stop watching the news, to look away from screens, to feel more balanced, to re-energize, to uh, connect with those that are important to us. Of course, disconnecting is hard. It may trigger stress because, again, to be in the know for, is deeply associated with being a key survival. Uh, again, as we talked about, Robin Dunbar, an evolutionary psychologist, note that for a long time, uh, knowing information felt vital to our survival. So today, when we switch off or disconnect at times and engage in soothing reflections or, me or meditation or walks in nature or connecting with uh, that which is uh in other ways soothing it can feel like in some way that we're vulnerable or that we're engaging in privilege or that we're not being compassionate enough for those that are suffering in the world but none of that is true those that feeling of stress that comes from disconnecting from all of the news and cutting or putting aside time for uh, essentially restoring our nervous systems back to the window of tolerance is vital to being an effective member of the global stage, the global arena, and so forth. Um, to do this, we, one, have to engage in mindfulness. We have to be aware of the physical signals of addiction and hypervigilance. The if we find that every time we are looking at a, uh, a news uh, feed, uh, whether it's TV or it's on, uh, it's on the internet or it's on social media or what have you, if our muscles, our abdomens get tight, if we're holding our breath, if we're unable to look away, if it feels like when we focus our attention elsewhere, that it's difficult to focus attention on other aspects of our life, that we keep feeling this addictive pull to these sources of news, then it's very important to be able to practice shutting off, disconnecting, viveka, uh, rebalancing and reorienting our nervous systems towards safety. Because again, the more we consume uh, negative news, the more prone we are to rumination and catastrophizing. I, you know, I knew many, many people who at the beginning of the pandemic basically 
while the pandemic was terrible, but also said it was never, ever going to have a resolution that for the rest of our lives, we would be uh, always wearing masks all the time. And it's not the case. There is always amidst all of the preponderance of bad news, there's always as well balancing signs of hope and things to also there's always resources in our own life but if we become overly balanced to threat cues we it will become increasingly difficult to reorient so it's important to develop a practice to savor the good in life it takes about 20 times as much neural energy and attention to ingrain a positive experience than a negative. So that's why we have this term savoring for sitting with focusing attention on positive experiences, positive uh, events in our life, uh, and really savoring the feelings, the warmth, the energy of the the good news that which is safe and secure and reliable in our world this is why the buddha uh, of the 10 recollections at least half were about reflecting on the good santi nusati reflecting on places and times we've been peaceful kaga nusati reflecting on times people have been generous to us deva nusati reflecting on people who took care of us and or angelic beings in the world who were on our side and uh sila nusati reflecting on our goodness and so on and so forth so security priming is really vital exposure to and reorienting ourselves towards that which is um creates a sense of security and a sense of reliability is vital. There's a, a lot of research by Omri Gilliath at the University of Kansas who talks about the value of using positive mental images and uh, of using images of natural settings and so on and so forth. And I would lastly say that a key tool in the Dharma is the sunyata practices. The Buddha, sunyata means emptying or emptying out the mind practices. The Buddha said that as he uh, grew older, he spent the last 20, I think, years of his life practicing sunyata meditations, emptying out his mind of stressful events, stressful reflections, opening his mind to spaciousness and ease and comfort so that he could then go out and teach and deal with all of the the stressful situations of his time it's worth noting that the dharma was developed in an even more violent and unstable time than what we live in during the Indus Valley region some 2,500 years ago when the Buddha uh, lived, there were constant raids, constant um, uh, invasions by one kingdom to another. Uh, there's many, many teachings in the Pali Canon of warlords and cutthroat um uh merchants and so forth that were had blood on their hands that were constantly seeking to manipulate the buddha's teaching for their own purposes so the buddha had to have an ability to step outside of all the drama of his time and if you'd like to read more about it there's a wonderful book by called Buddha by Karen Armstrong that goes into just how violent and unstable the time of the Buddha was and how the Dharma was there to help people establish peace amidst the storm. 
So the Buddha found it by practicing an emptying out meditation called the Kula Shunyata, and that's what we're now going to be practicing, a way to carve out some peace and ease amidst the storm of the world around us. So I thank you for listening. I hope you found this talk in some way useful. When I carve out these talks, I try not to give talks simply because I think they're, you know, nice to know. I actually try to give talks that uh, respond to what people are sharing with me in counseling. So uh, I try to make these talks as I think uh, appropriate to this, the uh, challenges that we're facing. So I hope in some way tonight's talk uh, met some concern. And um, so now find a really comfortable seated position. And uh, You can, if you want, uh, start this meditation with your eyes open or with your eyes closed. And this meditation, if you ever want to find it, is based on uh, the Kula Sunyata, which is a 2,500-year-old meditation practice uh, the Buddha taught, and it's in the Pali Canon. And... Uh, So kula means longer and shunata means emptiness. So it's the longer teaching on emptiness where the meditation is mentioned. And so the Buddha starts the meditation by suggesting that we become aware of the world directly around us. And this can be done by keeping your eyes open and just noticing the room and all the signs of furniture and uh, uh, man-made objects around you. If you hear in the distance people talking, being aware of that, being aware of all of the signs of civilization, and in this meditation, what we're going to be doing is sequentially emptying the mind of all the world so that eventually we can return to the world with a revitalized state. So just being aware of all of the signs of civilization, the world, of people around you. If you have your eyes closed, just visualize the place where you live. You might want to visualize the streets outside or anything that the Buddha said, uh, to become aware of what he called the village, the people and the buildings and the signs of life around us. And then when we're ready, we can close our eyes. And as we close our eyes, let go of all of the signs of civilization, of people, of man-made objects and buildings. Try to erase, elide, remove them from your 
mind and just replace that with a much simpler image of any sense of the natural world around you, the natural world unaffected by human endeavor. So trees or mountains. If you live in a city such as I do, just become aware of the nature that underlies these structures. Any rivers, parks. So we're removing our concerns with the world of other people from the mind. And we're just now reflecting on all that is natural around us. And just allow this more soothing, settling reflection to sustain our attention for a little while. And the next step, the Buddha offers is to let go of reflecting on the nature, the trees, the rivers, the grass, the any sense of the natural, and just become aware of the solidity of the earth itself that we rest upon. The earth is our vehicle moving through its journey around the sun. Just reflecting on that most basic sense of being connected to a single sphere that makes its journey through the solar system. Putting aside all concerns now with the 
concerns of people, the events of the world, the events of nature, even the concerns of global warming or other natural catastrophes and just just allow the mind just to reflect on this very basic insight that we are passengers on a planet And now letting go of the reflection of the earth, just becoming aware now of the space that surrounds us in all directions. Once we remove any concern with the world of other people, any concern with the natural world, any concern of are being attached to the earth and now just being aware and reflecting upon all of the vast space that surrounds us in every direction. The unlimited space, upwards, downwards, in front, behind, to left and the right, as they say in early Buddhism, all the six directions. Just reflect on the vast emptiness and spaciousness, the unlimited openness. And just let your mind rest in this reflection.
Now we're reaching the most emptying part of the practice, letting go of reflecting on the space around us, and now just being aware of the unlimited potential and capability of the mind itself, its ability to hold in it or encompass all of the known universe, and yet at the same time, its ability to empty out and just become aware of itself, its ability to simply reside, just reflect on the limitless mind, the expansive mind, and just allowing any sensations that are present to pass through awareness without devoting any attention or thought, but not pushing anything away, not directing attention, not translating any experience into words, just being awake, conscious, and aware of what your mind is doing and appreciate of it, but in no way allowing your mind to contract around any thought or story, keeping it as open and spacious so every event can simply be a sensation that passes through consciousness, but without any without catching our attention.
And so at this point, we're going to just slowly reverse the process, bringing awareness back to reflection of being connected to the earth, the natural world that surrounds us, and then finally the reflection and awareness that we are in and amongst other people in a certain location with all of the attendant benefits and drawbacks of being a part of a human landscape. And when you're ready, open your eyes.